This episode of The Greatest Stories Never Told is brought to you by Cooper's Board Store, an icon of the Coffs Coast where you can find all the biggest names in stock online or in one of their five fully sick outlets. And froth alert, froth alert next weekend as part of the Coffs Board Riders Annual Club Challenge. If you can get down to the Cooper's Surf Jetty Store in Coffs around about 5.30 in the other, this is Friday, March 17, next Friday, I'll be hosting a Q&A with Julian, Khan, Joycey, Brad Wilson, and handing out a bunch of free shit to all the frothers who want to meet the 2014 Pipe Master in the flesh. That's Julian, Khan, Joycey, Brad Wilson, live at the Cooper's Surf Jetty Store, Friday, March 17, 5.30, thanks to Billabong, JS Surfboards, Coffs Harbour Board Riders, Rivia, Jules's Company, and Cooper's Board Store. There'll be pizza and scoos from the Hoey Moey. It's going to be huge. Come on down to Coffs. We'll see Rusty. We'll see the big banana. It's going to be filth. And don't forget, if you're in the market for a new sled, coopersboardstore.com.au. Every board you can possibly imagine, every model, get it delivered to your door. Get it! Fantasies, pulsing swells, them who knows them, seven tales, on distant reefs, on fatal shores, heroes and heroines from days of yore. They live on the fringes, pack mondo cones, orbs of mortal conequence, pulverizing bones, adventures and nightmares for young and old. These are the greatest stories never G'day Swillians, welcome to part two of the Joel Parkinson You Gotta Lose One to Win One world title story. Or in fact, you gotta lose three to win one, or five even. Can't remember how many lost, but he came second a lot. Now, if you're a regular listener of the show, you'd have heard The Greatest Stories Never Told, part one, which dropped a week or two ago, detailing the Mick and Parco War of 2009 a wild world title race that saw Joel go from unbackable favourite to win his first world crown in the first half of that year to the mind-numbing agony of being mowed down by a dud ankle and an albino cybernetic machine with Irish blood who just also happened to be his best mate. Uh, This episode, it takes place three years later as Joel once again finds himself in the hunt for a maiden world title. Not only against Mick but also against the GOAT, Kelly Slater. And uh, it is neck and neck heading into Pipeline. Again, we had uh, Sean Doherty in Camp Parco to give us the kind of access that very few riders are privy to in uh, a world title campaign, particularly after the pain of what happened in 2009. So Parco loved having Sean O in his camp and Sean O, you know, being the fly on the wall, doesn't pull any punches when he's telling this story despite his uh, close relationship with Joel. Uh, This story was originally published in Surfing World issue 334, so February 2013 it came out, which makes it a 10-year anniversary. And that mag was cover-to-cover Parco, a tribute-ish dedicated to one of the most brilliantly gifted wave messiahs to have ever ridden those last gasps of energy that began their journey on the surface of the sun. It was a glorious mag to work on. Actually, it wasn't. It was fucking a nightmare. Uh, Parco won the world title four days before deadline. We had a mag all laid up, finished, ready to go to the printers. Uh, It was just before Christmas. And uh, Doug Lees, the publisher, came down and said, we've got to do a whole mag on Parco. So we ripped it all up and did a three-day cram fest like you cannot believe to get it done. It was a fucking nightmare, but it was worth it in the end because the mag is a, a sick celebration of Parco. And, um, yeah, I think you'll find that this article penned by Sean O amidst the celebrations, Sean O always manages to turn up even when the pressure is so tense. Or in this case, the fun would have been going on without him. Must have been driving him mad. 
But uh, it's just a fucking cool story, man. And uh, again, this issue is lifted from my era as the editor of Surfing World, but it's great to get the okay from the guys in there to uh, reproduce these stories, um, Sean O in particular. And we highly recommend that you support the mag today. It's still being published independently. It's owned by the 297 Cone Piece Award winner, Sean Doherty. So former chief staff writer, now owner, editor. And uh, he does that with the great voyeur lensman, genius savant, John Frank. Two of the all-time greats of print media, keeping the dream alive so that you've got something to look at when you're taking a shit and your phone runs out of batteries. Seriously, though, it's, uh, it's a world-class mag and it still delivers the greatest articles on the planet, in my opinion. Surfingworld.com.au if you want to sort out a subscription for yourself or, I don't know, your folks or whoever, whoever you love who enjoys a bit of good quality surf riding and photos. Right, well, before we revisit this uh, amazing story that takes place at the last event of the year, the Pipe Masters in 2012, the three big dogs going at it for a world champ, Mick, Joel and Kelly. We're going to hear from Joel himself to find out how he did it, how he was able to rebuild himself from the disappointment of 09 into yet another title tilt just a few years later. In 2012. He's the 2012 Pipeline Master. He's the surfer, surfer too. He's a sunny coast coolie legend. He's trained to Timbuktu. When it comes to professional surfing, he's our swellian guru. If anyone knows, you know who knows? Parkos knows. Parkos knows. Yeah, mate. Let me uh, let me scoop you into what we've done here. We about a week or two ago, we read Sean Doherty's story from the 2009 title race. You and Mick going at it for that world title. How the year played out, and then uh, this time, chapter two, a bit of a happier chapter, getting the job done against Kelly in 2012. And uh, yeah, man. I mean, I guess what I wanted to talk to you about was. On the latest series of Make or Break, have you copped it yet? I have watched, I think I'm on episode two. Yeah, so like basically it goes into Tatiana's sort of near miss where she, she gets to the WSL finals and, you know, she surfs this wave and she falls on her last turn and the world title slips through her fingers and that whole episode kind of deals with her just going into this kind of free fall uh, with enthusiasm and purpose and she just she just kind of goes dead flat after that loss and um yeah mate i just you know after we we heard that story about 2009 just wanted to sort of take us through sort of the initial weeks and months after that year and and how it affected you yeah man um i watched that tatiana one too and i mean whether you lose the heat, I mean, that was a really harsh rate because she did literally, she makes that turn. I feel she wins the heat. Right? Mm. So that was that was a really harsh thing for to watch. But, you know, in saying that, uh, I, afterwards she was flat. I think I, I was the same when it happened to me. I was super flat after I was, even to like, I reckon to, even to 2011, I, to New York when I got to the, I guess my lowest point when I was trying to convince my wife, Monica, uh, that I was giving up. I was so over it in 2011 at New York. I was like, this is it. I'm, let's, I'm not, I'm done. I'm calling it. I'm over the tour. Um, I just felt like I was just grinding. There was like, just, I, I, I was still kind of getting results and stuff and I was still on the top, you know, five, I think at the time, but I just, I just felt like uh, I just needed to, uh, some space from it because it had, there was probably a few scars of pain of from losses that loss too, mm. um, and I put in so much effort into it, and I just had you know got injured and just, um, and then I just felt like I just missed a couple of silly silly decisions in ten in two thousand ten, and then in two thousand eleven I was over it, but then come into 2012 well hang on just before you go into that because in 2010 you don't make a final and 
that's pretty rare for you. I mean, you know, you, you've sort of uh, came out that year before, won three of the first five. Uh, you can kind of sense that that's happening. But I find it amazing that, you know, you won that 50 years of Bells against Fanning. That was a psycho final in 2011. Yeah. And then yep. you get to New York and you, you're just not feeling it. Like, even though it felt like you were kind of on the comeback? Yeah. Wow. And I, I know, and I just was so over it. I, I, uh, I, You know what really made me really flat? And it's some weird trigger. I don't know what. My, I left, I went out to Long, Long Beach, wherever the contest was, and we had a, had a room there. The waves were, we surfed, had a couple of days, and then it went flat, and they were like, we had a couple of days before the contest started. So we went into the city for two nights, I think. And when I come back to a couple of days before it started, maybe two days before it started, my board bag had been opened and my Bells board had been stolen, just my Bells board, my favorite board for oh. the year. And I was furious. I was just like, I'm, you know, I was over it anyway, but that was the one that just threw, you know, ripped the ripped the lid off. I was just like, oh, I'm over this. And mm. the whole time I was there, I just wanted to give up. I didn't even care if I made the heat or not. You know, I had that. It was a really shit spot to be in when, you know, I guess you're in the peak of your your career. But I, I, it's hard to it's hard to get out of those ruts when, you know, when it means so much to you, I suppose. Yeah. And so uh, one of the real, oh, I think, one of the most iconic images in, in pro surfing history, like one that says so much more than, you know, standing on a, a, a you know, holding up a trophy or, or anything like that, is that photo of Mon holding your head in her hands in Mundaka. This is in the 2009 race when it's yep. all sort of really delaminated. And um, so you tell her when you get to New York, um, you know, the woman who's been by your side and ridden all of that agony with you and seen you really, you know, heartbroken. Like when you tell her that you want to give it the flick, what did she say? Oh, she was like, no, no, give it a bit more time, give it time. You know, you'll get through. Just give it a little bit more. And Cap was just reassuring me, I guess, that, you know, it's a rut I'm in and um, I'll get out of it. And and I don't even know why I come back. Maybe it was just the year ended. I went home and enjoyed myself. And uh, Well, did you go actually, from – really, did you actually go from New York to uh, New York to San Fran first or was that, was that part of the same – I think it was New York, Europe, right? New York, Europe. And then when was San Fran? Do you remember? That was towards the end, hey? Yeah. So yep. you made the final there, but then you come up against the seventeen-year-old who blitzes yeah, everyone. How was that uh-huh. for your for your self-esteem and your your, your love of surfing? You probably really good because I actually, as I was saying, I actually probably started to care a bit more. Mm. Um, and then <laughs> once, uh, and I think because when I went to San Fran, it was pretty much uh, going to be Luke and I uh, we were kind of part ways on our. Stuff. So we kind of went, oh, let's go out and we'll go for a bang, like get out and make it a, a good last time together while he's coaching me and got to the final and I knew the hype and I knew Gabriel was amazing. But I thought, nah, no one's, you know, skid or stumble. No one's come up against him and challenged him yet. And I didn't either. <laughs> he <just> absolutely collapsed <laughs> me. I think I might have started like, I can't remember, maybe almost a seven, maybe a high six or something. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll just build on that. And then he just went bang, bang, bang. And I went, oh, no. He went eight, nine. He just went, oh, then I think I might have got a five. And then he went a seven. And I was just oh, no, what is this guy? So in a weird sort of round of it, like it, it's kind of almost a contrast to what you'd think uh, is that that actually a little bit of a fire back under Yeah, I suppose. I mean, and then I was all pumped. To, I, I, like I still was enjoying surfing. That's the one part. I never didn't mm. fall out of love with that, which is probably – that one's a hard one to come back from, but I lo- still was loving. Like I was like, oh, I couldn't wait to go get to Hawaii and go surfing. I wasn't looking forward to competing, but I, I was happy to get to Hawaii and go surfing. Sick, sick. Yeah, and then um, yeah, then I kind of couldn't really tell you what. Maybe it was just some time apart and to decompress and finish. That it really makes a. I think maybe having breaks, you know, having having that off season and starting a new season. Um, and when I started in in 2012, and it was kind of it's a bit cliche, but remember Kelly's one, letting go and it all goes, mm. you know, it all falls into place. Mm. 
um, it was very much like that. Like I, I cared, really cared for my surfing and I cared for competing enough to be focused on it, but I didn't care for, you know, that it was going to change me, you know, not winning a world title or anything that I'd kind of given up on it. Not that I'd given up on it, but I kind of thought, you know, the, I can work hard and hopefully I get there. And But it made me just maybe focus on the smaller steps and not looking at a, you know, a finish line. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's funny that you say that, man, because that's like one of the big coaching mechanisms that they use at the HPC and – you know, part of the, all the Aussie push that's come through now is like enjoy the journey, don't don't focus on the result, and uh, it's fully working. Like I mean, and it's a, it's a proven sure. formula. It's a proven formula, and I mean, probably, you know, coaching has come leaps and bounds from you know ten ten years ago when I won, uh, even you know, and leading up to our you know those those years where we were you know in the, the pinnacle of our career. Um, I wish I had someone with the knowledge or even myself to, to figure it out. Like maybe, you know, don't focus on the results so much and you, or what you need, you know, enjoy the journey, surf to the best of your ability, make smart decisions, all those, you know, kind of simple, simplify, not complicate it when I'm chasing down. If I get a fourth round here, it gives me, a, you know, yeah. 600 points and yep. that kind of stuff. And, mate, tell us about 2012 then because it was a, it was a year where you just – it's it, it sounds exactly like on on paper it looks like what you're describing like it looks like you're just cruising and all of a sudden i mean uh you did have that final with uh mick at chopes which we won't bring up but then uh <laughs> yeah. final at trestles and all of a sudden at the end of the year you've got the ratings lead and it's almost like you've just sort of found yourself there like i, I hope that's not sort of disrespecting the effort you're no, putting not in at all, but man. Not at all. but yeah it's it's sort of like uh you're there like at what point yeah. did it start to become real again where you were like, fuck, here I am and and it's it's there. It's right there for the taking if, if I can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, I mean, just I think um, probably when once I got to that point, I was like, I got pretty, uh, you know, pretty focused on, I guess, not that I was just telling myself I was going to win, but I wasn't going to lose. I always said that. I couldn't hear, I'm not losing this. I'm not losing. I'm not losing. Mm. I'm going to go make every decision I can to be right. I'm going to, you know, swing to the end. And uh, I, I don't know, you know, I had heats where I was behind and I come back and just, I really had a lot of belief in myself. And probably even so, when I, even though I got uh, to Trestles, um, after the Trestles event, uh, mid season through the, uh, the year, I, I just felt like my, that was probably some of the best surfing and the most, I felt like I could do anything on a surfboard uh, mm. during that event. And the, the final was really lackluster. We had two sets. Kelly ended up winning, I think, with pretty low scores, maybe a seven or a five. And I, we didn't need much. We just didn't get opportunity. Um, and I really felt like I was the, the best surfer of the event. Uh, I remember I posted like three heats in, in the 18 range in that event and then everything else was pretty high too. Mm. And I was just like, I left that event just going, I know I didn't win. I'm a bit pissed I didn't win, but, mate, I feel like if give me a chance, give me a wave, and I'm, hopefully I'm not going to lose the rest of the year. Man, oh, man, it's just such a cool story. Like uh, I was flicking back through that surfing world issue that we made in tribute to the year and stuff, and there's some cool shit in there. Like there's uh, some photos of – I sent you one the other day of, of you spraying Kelly at Santa Cruz, like an event where yeah, he had yeah, an yeah. absolute shocker and he's paddling out for a heat and you're fucking giving him the good old grommet just spray to the face. Uh, yeah. he's, and he's fully holding his hand up to high-five you too, so it was classy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, we, we like. I still really, and, you know, like I said, like I like twelve months before that, I was hating competing. Twelve months later, I was loving it. Mm. it was, and I, you know, I couldn't tell you the exact way the, the moment it changed, but it just slowly built to. Oh, I'm really enjoying this again. Yeah, and then you know, uh, on his side of things, like when you read through this story, Kelly. He's kind of in a similar situation in, in some ways. You know, like he, he's in the race. He's had a kind of an up-and-down year. He won three events that year, which is crazy. But then he went really diabolically shit in a couple of others. Portugal, uh, he got snapped by Rayoni or someone. Um, but 
yeah, it gets down to the final at Pipe, mate, and, you know, you haven't won an event all year. And this is where we sort of kick into this story, so we won't spoil too much, but I'd just love to get your take on um, one aspect of it. In the press conferences, in the lead-up to this event, uh, Sean goes into it in pretty good detail how both of you guys are trying to out, out sort of be out-calm each other. <laughs> It's like, you know, you're getting asked like, oh, you know, you're feeling any pressure. You're like, nah, man, I'm cruising. I'm just enjoying my surfing. Kelly's like, oh, I'm so cruisy that I haven't even thought about it really. And you're like, oh, man, for thinking about it, I'm not even, it doesn't even cross my mind. Uh, yeah, so it's. Don't think about it. it come into the front of my brain. I'd be like, get out of here. <laughs> get back to the back of the brain. I don't want to think about you. But what's <laughs> remarkable, mate, is that Kelly, in this interview, is talking, like, Sean O's writing, like, if he gets that world title, he retires. And he's saying, you know, after he loses this world title that he was he just finds it so hard to be motivated. He finds it really hard to be interested in in surfing heats. He thinks the world's a bigger place. Mate, this is fucking ten years ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is he just full of shit or is he actually you know, how does he find it? Like, what's his caper? I don't mate, I think he just loves it, mate. He just loves surfing and loves competing yeah. and the thought, yeah, the thought, oh, I'm over it. I've had enough. I've, but the thought of stopping is way scarier than the thought of, you know, just, you know, maybe not enjoying it a few times. And But I think he just loves it. Yeah, same. Well, mate, thanks so much for your time. And uh, we'll rip into this story. If you get a chance to listen to it, have a go. Cause, yeah, we sure I will, oh, mate. Oh, mate, Shauno is just, he's he is the best. And, um, you know, your relationship with him and the access that he was able to have in both these these years is just something that's cherished because, you know, it's really all laid out. And, um, mate, I just got the biggest rush of goosebumps thinking about it. It was sick. Oh, mate, I know. I, I, yeah, I find myself, I, even though it's 10 years ago, I, every now and then it pops up in my brain. I start thinking about it. It that definitely brings back so much emotion and puts a smile on my face. So probably should think about it a bit more. <laughs> Awesome, mate. All right, see you down at Bells. See you, Bye, see you Bells. Deliverance. Behind the scenes of a world title climax for the ages. Story by Sean Doherty. There's a rooster in the yard, a dandy golden bird with a green sheen that goes beneath the coconut palms in the hour before the dawn. He struts in every morning in the darkness from the farm across the road, grubbing the lawn of the million dollar beach house. It's the first morning of the Pipe Masters and Joel Parkinson is standing in the dark alone, holding a cup of macadamia coffee while looking out over Pipeline. He's been up since four wrapped in a hoodie, squinting into the dark to make out the plumes and white lines of the breaking swell. He sees the bird. The bird sees him. The bird's head twitches nervously while his eyes stay locked on Joel. Slowly, deliberately, Parco puts the coffee cup down. He looks back out to sea. Then in a heartbeat, he pirouettes, drops the clutch and races off after the bird who's squawking madly and fleeing into the shadows. Joel Parkinson is here, chasing the one missing piece in an otherwise perfect life. And it's not a chicken. Joel knows this backyard too well. Three years ago, it was here he broke down after losing the unlosable world title. He punched walls, impaled surfboards, collapsed and sobbed. He'd led the ratings for most of the year only to blow out an ankle and watch on helplessly becalmed as good mate Mick Fanning slowly, excruciatingly, inevitably ran him down. When Mick finally claimed the title at Pipe, I remember Joel coming up to me in the same backyard saying, I've got to go down there, don't I? I told him it was probably going to be the worst 10 minutes of his life, but that if he didn't go down there and cheer his friend up the beach, he'd spend the next 10 years regretting it. That year lives with me more than anything, says Joel. 
I lost the title because of my ankle and it came down to a few heats in the end. It'll always haunt me to lose that lead after being so far in front. The only thing that will make it go away is, well, you know. The 2012 World Surfing title will be decided on Hawaii's North Shore. And again, Joel and Mick are in the running. But this time, they are not alone. It's not just a him and me this time around. It's him, me, and a guy who's already won 11 of the things. Coming into pipe, Kelly Slater and Joel are neck and neck in the ratings. Joel, a struck match ahead. Kelly, however, takes the ratings lead if he makes the quarters, and he's only missed the quarters twice in a decade. Mick is a smoky. He needs to win the contest. Joel is the sentimental favourite for the world title. Kelly, the logical favourite. The heart says Joel, but the head says Kelly. Amidst the celebrated regeneration on tour this year, these three, who hold the past seven world titles between them, Kelly five, Mick two, and Joel none, have re-established the old guard by outsurfing the new. Their seasons have contrasted. Mick won Bells in Tahiti, but blew a head gasket in Europe. Joel has been metronomic, making the semis and finals at will, but unable to win a contest. It's Kelly, however, whose form line has been the hardest to pick. We've seen this year the continuing evolution of the world's greatest sportsman, and there have been times where he surfed like he could win world titles for another decade. But at other times, he surfed like a 40-year-old should. There have been times when he's looked like Austin Powers, Sans Mojo, and for every groundbreaking Bell spinner or cloudbreak chicane, there has been a steamer lane discombobulation. After Santa Cruz, I think he was shocked himself. How out of sync he was with the place, offers Mick Fanning. Because I've never seen anything like that with him before. But the form line means little, because we're at the pipeline. Kelly knew he only had to get the title fight to pipe, and the advantage was his. History says so. No one dissects the lineup and opponents out here with the same graceful efficiency as Kelly Slater. I'm super comfortable at Pipeline, says Kelly in one of surfing's great truisms. That's what I've got going for me. I've won a couple of titles here with the last heat of the contest, but I've also lost a title with the last heat of the contest too. But those don't matter at all. They're just a feeling, an experience, an emotion, and that can be positive or negative depending on how I channel them. I think Joel is trying to keep his mind off it, but in reality, he's trying to win his first world title, so he's going to have a lot of pressure on him. But while Kelly might have the history, the swagger, and the arena in his corner, Joel has hope. Joel's house is booming Marley's Three Little Birds, his theme song. The place is feeling iry and righteous. Joel is feeling like it's his time. Joel has figured every little thing is going to be all right. There's no point stressing, coos Joel, even-toned, calm. I think I'm a way better competitor, even a way better person when I'm relaxed. I function better. I compete better. Compared to the guy who lost the world title here three years ago, Joel today is more reasoned, more assured, more in control of his own destiny. He surfed pure and true this year. His tube riding and cutback have rhymed like Lion and Zion. His pulse rate has lowered. Joel has become the peaceful warrior. Joel learned some hard lessons in 2009. I think getting into a title race like I did in 2009 really kind of consumes you. There are no two ways about it. It fully consumes you. To a point, this one has, but only as much as I've let it. In 09, I was second-guessing everything I did. Walking down the beach for a heat and putting one foot in front of the other didn't seem right. I'd question whether I was walking the right way. Am I doing this? Am I doing that? I was second-guessing myself because I'd never been there before. In the week before the title is to be decided, Joel is drawn reluctantly into what a world title, the thing that shall not be mentioned would mean to him. I guess it would mean a lot. There have been a lot of ups and downs and it would be such a sweet feeling if in the wash-up I was the best surfer in the world this year. There are probably guys who are more talented and more this and more that, but putting a whole year together, it's not an easy feat. 
and to keep in a frame of mind, to keep your competitive drive through the ups and downs and keep a winning streak going is a hard thing to do. I haven't won a contest, but my consistency has been my saviour. The great irony here is that Joel could very well win a world title by not winning at all. There must be all sorts of crazy noise in there, says Taj Burrow of his housemate's headspace. There has to be, because nobody can be that relaxed. Joel seemingly has crushed down all the doubt, all the ghosts, all the bad juju. He's crushed 2009 and he's crushed Kelly and he's crushed them all down into a single dense dark cell that lives deep in his chest cavity. The fear for his fans is that that cell will break free sometime in the next week and multiply. But for now, Joel is pushing little Marley Parkinson around on his skateboard, cracking jokes, shadow boxing, and whistling Jawaiian reggae. I'm not sure he even realises he's surfing for the world title in five days' time. Kelly's motivations going into Pipeline remain, like the man himself, Byzantine. Surprising? Hardly. Finding new ways to dominate pro surfing over 20 years is one thing. Finding 20 years of reasons why is another entirely. He's masterful at both. So what does a 12th world title add to a legacy that an 11th, a 10th, even a 1st hasn't already done? A springboard to retirement? He simply has nothing better to do? Who knows? At any given time, there is a tornado of dreams, ideas, agendas and plans spinning wildly inside Kelly Slater's head. But even when he's being completely forthright, his future plans remain cryptic at best. I don't know, you know? I'm happy with 11 world titles. If I end up with 11, I'm more than happy with that. And if I were to get a 12th this year, I don't know if it would motivate me more to keep going or motivate me more to retire. It'll be more of a feeling thing. I find my life getting more and more busy and I find myself trying to figure out why that is. You choose to fill your life up with things and the busyness gets in the way of the things that are really important. And there are other things I'm interested in doing other than surfing contests. There are music projects I want to work on and more travel that's independent of the tour. But I don't really have the opportunity to do both. That's the reality I've chosen. It's an either or for me. There are a lot of things about competition that I really love. It forces you to stay in shape and stay on top of your game. But free surfing and travelling, you experience a lot more stuff, a lot more random things happening, a lot more people and a lot more places, a lot more freely. You have options. They both offer good and bad things and I don't know. There are a lot of things to weigh up in my head, but one day I'll wake up and it'll be clear and I'll say, this is what I'm doing. It'll all be clear, like Peter Druin. He woke up one morning and it was clear. That's maybe not quite the change I'm after, though. This may, of course, all be inconsequential. If the mines have got it right, the end of the pipeline contest window coincides with the end of the world. If Kelly, famously conspiratorial and in tune with the ancients, were to win his 12th world title in 2012, surely, as he's being carried up the beach at pipe, the earth will crack in two like an egg and globs of yolk would float out into space like a lava lamp. The Turtle Bay Hotel. Gated, manicured and full of rich white folk with golf clubs and swizzle sticks. They've just announced a 1,300 room expansion which hasn't gone down real well with the country folk out that way. Enough hotels already, the hand-painted sign says just down the road. But the hotel is teeming these days. Just try getting a table at Lele's or even a car park. The Pipemasters press conference is being held at Turtle Bay and Paco is circling the lot in his silver SUV when he spots an empty space. He guns for it and swings the wheel, only to be cut off by some bald guy in an even bigger SUV. Paco swears. Kelly gets out of the SUV. Paco swears again. Joel is adamant Kelly if not the universe, is screwing with him. A few days earlier, at a charity golf day in honour of the world's worst golfer, Andy Irons, a longest drive contest is held where everyone has to match Kelly's opening 328-yard salvo. No one, not even seasoned golfers, get close until Joel, 
the world's second worst golfer, steps up. He strikes the ball crisply and it shoots like a dimpled white comet down the fairway. Exactly 327 and a half yards. Joel swears again. The press conference is a somniferous affair. Kelly silently grazes the fruit buffet amongst the dozen or so local journos and wheezy surf hacks who have bothered turning up. Both Kelly and Joel embark on an ambivalence offensive, banging on so much about how relaxed they are leading in a pipe that some of the local journos start nodding off. <laughs> it's left to Mick to liven up proceedings. Well, if these two are so relaxed, I'm taking this thing seriously. Push-ups, sit-ups, the lot. It's a classic self-parody of Mick Fanning circa 2009, when he actually was doing the push-ups and sit-ups to win the title. Mick's position as a long shot for the title means he can afford to be a little more candid about what's not being said. I think it's maybe a bit of bluffing here and there, but that's what you've got to do. You sit there and you tell everyone how relaxed you are and how chilled you are, but really, you're sitting there and you're thinking a lot. I think I was the only one who actually was relaxed. I could feel the tension between those two. It's definitely there. But it's not like they're looking at each other saying, I'm going to smash you. They're both very aware of how good each other's surfing is and very aware exactly how dangerous each other is. But they're thinking about it a lot. And if they tell you they're not, they're fucking lying. first day of the Pipe Masters features the low seeds against the local pipe guys, but the real show goes down after the final hooter of the day. Maybe the most pivotal moment of the whole world title vaudeville act happened just as the Kayana Point sunset was being Instagrammed 500 times. The swell is bombing out of the west. It's the storm before the storm. It's borderline second reef and the pipe guys are doing what the pipe guys do, dropping from the skies. Some ride to glory while others get carted away and the wail of ambulance sirens pierce the afternoon. Kelly and Joel, meanwhile, are flirting with rogue sets at backdoor. The swell will swing more north overnight, meaning there will be backdoor waves for their heats tomorrow and the pair are trying to tune up despite the fact backdoor is unruly, if not downright dangerous. It's a low, low tide and the contour of the backdoor reef is clearly visible as water gets drawn violently off it. Both Kelly and Joel know that the waves caught out here in this session, in many ways, are as important as the waves they'll get in their heats tomorrow. A giant pipe set rolls through, the biggest of the day, but both Joel and Kelly only have eyes for backdoor. Joel gets under the peak for the first one, knifes his 6'8 into it, but is forced to straighten. It's Kelly's wave. Brother, the last wave of the set, and almost the last wave of Kelly. It's 12 foot, as big as backdoor can be surfed. Time stops as he drops in. He gets to the bottom and both he and his board are barely hanging on. His back foot has shifted ever so slightly and he can't get the rail to bite. Ahead of him, this monstrosity has drawn the reef almost dry. He has a choice to make and it's a really big one. Impossibly late, he could almost wrestle his board around and pull up into it. If he does, it will be the barrel of his life. If not, there's an ambulance siren howling his name. He's fast twitching. Go, go, go. No. He jams the tail and straightens as the hammer falls an arm's length from him. He doesn't get barreled, but he doesn't have to. Kelly is marking his territory. He runs up the beach in front of Joel's house and casts a glance in the general direction. Joel is the first of the three contenders to surf and he has drawn Hawaiian Kalani Chapman. It's a heavy draw, especially when backdoor, which Joel's whole strategy is based around, closes out for an hour straight before his heat. After weeks of good vibes and reggae, he's suddenly confronted by the cold reality he has to surf a hostile heat first up. As the minutes to his heat tick down, and the energy swirls, and things are suddenly becoming very, very real, he retreats up to his balcony and escapes into a fishing magazine. In 2009, he lost in this corresponding round to a Hawaiian wildcard, and he recounts that heat as an out-of-body experience. He said his surfing, his every movement, felt wooden and palsied, and he delaminated under the pressure. Joel starts well, but the heat becomes, as he predicted, 
a dogfight. He digs in, though, and Backdoor throws him enough love to progress. He comes in expressionless and scoffs a plate of hooli hooli chicken and avocado and gets ready to surf again in the last heat of the day. Kelly, meanwhile, cakewalks through his first heat against local wildcard Billy Kemper, posting the highest score of the day with a sublime, hands-free backhand tube. Kelly is on wood. If he'd lost that heat, the world title was Joel's, but that was never going to happen. Joel watches on from his balcony, wearing out the fishing mag. Mick Fanning's slim title chances, meanwhile, are extinguished by Shane Dorian. We battled a bit, went back and forth, but unfortunately for me, he got the two better ones and one, recalls Mick, who gashed his foot on his second wave and would later require seven stitches. But it felt good. I gave it everything. I wasn't disappointed and I came in. My year was done. Mick was philosophical. You know what? I sort of felt like I dealt with the pain of losing in the race back at Santa Cruz, so I was really relaxed here. Joel watched Mick's heat from his balcony, cheering Mick on all the way. Joel knows you need allies in the draw, and while it was a fine line, Mick was more ally than enemy in this deal, due to the fact Mick was in Kelly's half of the draw. He wasn't cheering me on, laughs Mick. He was probably cheering me into death sets, but I was hoping to get through a few heats and hopefully meet Kelly and help Joel out. Mick's allegiance then swings squarely to Joel. He cancels his flight home. He's not going anywhere. If this boy gets over the line on Friday, he'll chair him up the beach. He owes Joel one. I wasn't surprised he carried me up the beach in 09, says Mick. But I wouldn't have held a single grudge if he wasn't there. It just goes to show how strong our friendship is, and that meant the world to me. But whatever way that went, we would have been there for each other, and it's one of those things I'll remember forever. Joel surfed his round four heat that afternoon, the last of the day. The change in mood was palpable. He has a chance to move straight into the quarters and levitates across the sand to paddle out, even stopping to have photos taken with the crowd. I walked down the beach with a smile on my face. And all my best heats this year, I've felt like that. Walk down, happy just to be a part of it. Win or lose, happy. He won in the first five minutes, aced it with nines and eights. He was now in the quarters, while Kelly would have to surf extra heats on finals day. The pair had clearly been the two standouts on the day, and with John John and Mick both having lost, you saw a path clearing before them, leading them to the pipe final and a surf off for the world title. Lost in the mythologising of Kelly and Andy's memorable pipe final in 2003, the one that decided the world title that year, the one set amongst a blood feud that erupted in the weeks before, was the fact that Joel Parkinson was actually in that final. Joel was Andy's ally that day. It was awesome, remembers Joel. It was so good to watch. I remember Kelly walking down the beach, the high five, the I love you, the whole deal. It was amazing to see. I could have won that final. I kind of gave Andy, well, let's just say I pulled back on a wave. People might say I blocked Kelly. But I didn't, he says with a smirk. The wave Joel didn't take that day in 2003, in all likelihood, cost Kelly the world title that year, and was actually the catalyst for a tailspin and tears, some soul-searching, but an eventual renaissance. It was a wave that Kelly hasn't forgotten in the years since. All three title contenders were close to Andy Irons in their own way, and with the contest now held in memoriam, Andy's presence on the beach here remains strong. Joel seems the most likely to draw something from it. When asked what Andy would be doing right now if he was here, Joel replies, Andy, I'm sure he'd be supporting me in my corner, and I'm sure it'd be pretty vocal whatever he'd be saying. He'd be dropping a lot of F-bombs, telling me to get out there and kill him, bruh. It'd be an awesome thing to have him here, but I'm sure he'll be out there with me, and all of us. When Mick Fanning dropped out of the title race and it became Kelly and Joel head-to-head, No one was in a better position to assess the dynamics between the two. I think Kelly Joel and Kelly Andy are wholly different things. Kelly versus Andy was a war. They hated each other and they weren't afraid to say it to each other or in the media. They would see each other in the street and they had laser beams coming out of their eyes. It was intense. It's a little different now. No one comes out and says those things. And I guess it's more like a mutual respect. Joel and Kelly don't want to offend each other. Andy almost willed that 2003 final into existence. 
You just knew he wanted Kelly in that final to crush his pretty little picture, to beat him on his own terms in front of his people. As much as Joel is channeling Andy, he's going about dealing with Kelly in his own way. Andy was so full bore. He needed to be fired up. He needed to be put in a corner and fight his way out of everything. Me, personally, I don't work like that. But every competitor needs to find their niche, their style. And that was Andy's, and it was his best style of competing. If you can compete like that with all that pressure around you and suck it in like he did and throw it back at people, that's amazing. But it's just not me. Joel is down on the beach with Marley Parkinson and Axel Irons. The blonde two-year-olds are wrestling in the sand, scrapping over a board like their old boys once did. Axel won't give up, and Joel has to pry them apart. Watching on laughing, McCool Rothman comments, Apple don't fall far from the tree, bruh. There are four days off before the next swell arrives and the contest is due to finish. It's time to decompress. A time to rally for the final day. Joel's been having a recurring dream, nay, a nightmare, about paddling the Molokai Channel again. In the dream, he keeps paddling, but there's no Oahu. He just keeps paddling. He wakes up tired. Makua Rothman was Joel's boat driver when he paddled the Molokai Channel back in July and knows why the experience still stalks Joel in his sleep. Oh, brah, the look on his face a couple of times when he had to jump back in the water and paddle another mile. He was grey, brah. But the Molokai experience strengthened not only his body, it strengthened his ties to the islands. Joel has built a lot of goodwill in Hawaii over the years that go well beyond triple crowns and Molokai. Joel's house has a procession of visitors over those four days. Hawaiian friends, from Dane Kealoa to Shane Dorian, to Bruce Irons. The islands are behind him, says Makua. He has friends here, and you want to have friends in the islands. Joel is trying not to think about Kelly. You don't want him doing laps of your head like a motorbike inside the globe of death. But in the quiet hours of these quiet days, Joel's thoughts inevitably drift there. To come up against him and challenge him, the greatest surfer of all time at Pipe, the epicenter of the surfing world is Pipe. I mean, that's a dream. I mean, I was 11 years old when Kelly won his first world title, and 20 years later, here he is, still going for them. A final against him would be a dream. I'd be ready, always. Give him a big hug and an uppercut, and let's go. And if he told you he loved you, I'd tell him I love him right back. It'd be awesome. It'd be perfect. That's my trick. I'll kill him with kindness. Joel takes solace to that if the unthinkable happens here, if he doesn't win that it's not the last throw. And it's Kelly who's shown the way. In 2009, they said it would be the last time I'd be in contention. But here I am, back again, and I feel like my surfing is improving. If I don't win, I'll be back again next year. It makes me feel good that even if I didn't get it this year, that I've got a lot of good years left in me. Kelly has stayed so fit and healthy. He's a driven person, and I think it's a great thing he's set for future generations to follow. If you've got a healthy body and a healthy mind, you can stay at the top level for who knows how long. Tom Curran drops around the morning before the final. Rabbit Bartholomew is surfing pipe out the front on his own. Sonny Garcia is down on the beach in front of the house while Oki sticks his head over the fence from next door and asks if Joel wants to go for a surf. It's as if they're being drawn here by the local mana, world champions, wandering in without really knowing why being sent to offer their blessings. Curran sheepishly stands in the corner, unsure whether to go over and interrupt Joel. I laugh and tell him he'd be doing Joel a massive favour if he did. Joel's face lights up. Mick drops around later that afternoon with a plastic bag on his injured foot and the pair spend an hour on Joel's balcony, chatting like they're on the balcony of the surf club at Rainbow Bay. They talk about everything but surfing. They talk about Taylor Knox's retirement party. They talk about the Victoria's Secret show they watched on TV last night. They don't talk about the one thing that shall not be talked about. They don't need to. Joel knows now what needs to be done to win the world title. Mick knows too. If I was in his situation, my whole focus with every cell in my body would be saying one thing. Win the Pipeline Masters.
finals day, a Friday, and Uncle Brian Surratt wakes up at 4am. Nothing special here, just an old habit. Uncle Brian has been collecting sunrise shells on the beaches of the North Shore for years in the pre-dawn dark, and he's walked into Joel's backyard at 6am this morning wearing his lucky sunrise shell necklace. The shells are incredibly rare, but yesterday Joel found one while playing on the beach with Marley, a tiny one, as big as a thumbnail, and he has taken it as a sign from above. Uncle Brian has also brought round a tray of eggs from his chickens for Joel to put some lead in his pencil. Uncle Brian doesn't drink, but has vowed to have a few if Joel wins today, because Joel's his boy. As the light seeps over the escarpment, there's not a soul in the water. The building where Swell is butting heads with a whipping northeast trade wind. It's pissing down. It's ugly. Ah, bullshit weather, barks Uncle Brian. It's an ugly duckling morning, destined, however, to later become something truly beautiful. Joel paddles out at pipe alone, but is soon joined by a young Brazilian, Gabriel Medina, who has drawn Kelly in the first heat of the day. Gabe is an unlikely ally for Joel today, and Joel paddles over to him smiling. Hey Gabby, see you in the final, huh? If that were to happen, Joel would be the world champ. The way you beat Kelly out here is to keep him off the best waves, and no one does that better than Gabe Medina. In the first heat, he hassles Kelly in, under, and around the peak, and keeps him out of the sweet spot. Kelly trails badly and snaps aboard. His belated revenge on Gabby coming when the nose of his snap board, floating free in the lineup, trips Gabby over as he comes flying out of a gaping pipe barrel. Kelly could not have placed it there better. Kelly is forced to surf the losers' round to make the quarters, and a loss in the losers' round would lose him the title. Earlier in the week, he'd been asked if he had a fear of 2003 repeating and the title slipping through his fingers on the sands of Ehukai. We all have fears on lots of levels. I definitely have a fear of not doing my best and accepting that. Kelly paddles out against Miguel Pupo, knowing that if he wins, he moves into the lead on the ratings, and the title is then his to lose. He opens with a 9.57, and the bear is awake. In Joel's backyard, the glimmer of hope that Kelly might stumble in this round, that Joel might win the title without surfing a heat today, is quickly snuffed out. There's a looming sense of fatalism. The Slater Dreadnought is bearing down. And so begins maybe the most intense, emotional, and downright breathtaking day pro surfing has seen in many moons. Pipe comes to the party. The sun is shining and backdoor is rifling. Joel and Kelly thrust and parry. The title rides on every heat. A loss for either loses the title. For both camps, it's excruciating, but for Joel's especially. Most are unable to watch. Monica Parkinson paces the yard, fluctuating between catatonia, despair, and joy. Most of his crew can't even bear to watch. Marley Parkinson and Axel Irons fight over the skateboard for the 50th time, oblivious. Kelly beats good friend Shane Dorian in a classic quarterfinal, trading 10s and 9s with the only thing missing, a high five in the channel. Both Joel's quarter and semi are nail biters, the latter even more so. To get to the final, Joel has to beat the good old Hobgood boys in successive heats, CJ in the quarters and Damien in the semis. Joel is close to both of them, Damo in particular, but they are just as close with fellow Floridian Kelly, and both are famously combative. Against Damien, Joel looks sunk. Damo picks off a rare left on a day of rights, which sucks the oxygen out of the room in Joel's house. There are 50 souls up there, and none of them breathe a word. Most just inspect the lawn. With five minutes to go, he's cooked. Andy would tell himself, I'm not losing this heat. There is simply no way I'm losing this heat. And that's what I was telling myself in that heat with Damo. In the past, I'd lose dogfights like that. But I told myself there was no way I was coming this far and losing this fucking thing. Two waves in two minutes, and he's turned it around. He wins. The momentum shifts. Kelly now faces Josh Kerr in the semis. Kersey was bounced badly in the first heat of the morning and has just returned from hospital after having x-rays on what was suspected to be a broken neck. And while the Floridians had been working in Union, now Kersey was surfing for his hometown of Coolangatta. When Kersey stands tall in a backdoor drainer and is bathed into the channel, hopes in the Parco camp cautiously rise. 
And then a strange thing happens. Nothing. Not a set. Not a ripple. Nada. It was becalming, ancient mariner style. And on a day as dramatic as this, it actually supplies the most dramatic minutes. Kelly and Kersey sit and wait. And wait. And wait. Kelly can't conjure anything. Time ticks down. Someone in Parco's yard quips that with Kelly now in the business of making his own waves, Mother Nature is treating him as a competitor. And the clock ticks. Earlier that morning, Monica Parkinson had lit a candle in their bedroom and said a prayer to Andy Irons to look after his old friend today. That candle burned all day, but with two minutes to go in Kelly's semi, as a world title loomed and Joel paced the room, the candle burned out. Joel freaks. He keeps repeating, Are you fucking kidding me? Kelly only needs an eight. Just then, Bruce Irons walks in. Bruce apologises for not coming around earlier, saying he didn't want to ruin the vibe. The pair embrace on Joel's balcony. Bruce lifts him off the ground and reassures Joel, It's all good, bruh. I did a deal with the devil to get you this. With 30 seconds left and no lines on the reef outside, a building chorus of hoots from a backyard full of friends drifts up. A pay-in on the Hawaiian trades. For Joel, it's the sweetest sound. Standing on the royal balcony, the new king is set upon. Monica, Bruce, Makua, Wes, Luke. This is it. Redemption, relief and righteous love all in one moment. The place erupts. Grown men cry. Joel cries. Champagne rains. The universe has smiled. The new world champ descends from the balcony to surf the final of the Pipe Masters. After the drama of the day, it acts as an epilogue. Joel wins the Pipe Masters and the world title, and the circle completes. Kelly is clearly bummed, but gracious on stage. He acknowledges this was overdue for Joel and hands him the trophy on stage. If Kelly was thinking of walking away, Joel had stolen the moment. With the end near, Kelly was denied the opportunity to do it his way. He won't be going out on top, and the expected announcement of his retirement from tour doesn't come. The hints are still there, if somewhat cryptic. Sometimes I feel disinterested, and I find myself at contests lately feeling more and more disinterested, which signifies some kind of change is necessary. If it doesn't matter to you, you're not going to go out and do it. Things have to matter to you whatever those reasons are. The emotions you run, the gamut of emotions on tour over a year, even in a heat, or even on one wave, for better or worse. Well, today mattered, and the consolation for Kelly is that he has just played a role in a modern classic that may have just helped save pro surfing. The following day, I'm sitting alone in Joel's backyard, the place is littered with tequila bottles and half-sucked limes. There's a dirty ripped t-shirt emblazoned with the words, I finally fucking won. The world title trophy sits in a corner, some dubious concoction still slooshing around in the bottom of it. Pipeline continues to pump. The win has meant the world to Joel. The win has meant the world to Joel, but scouring the online tributes flooding in, it means a lot to the world. I can only imagine the scene in Coolangatta right now. Cars may be flipping and burning themselves. In amongst the pages of gushing congratulations online, I find one poignant, sagely little offering. It was posted the night before the final by someone Joel has never met, who lives somewhere Joel has never been, but someone who feels, like most Parco fans, close to him in a way. The message read simply, just kiss your wife and kiss your baby and go surf. And no matter what happens... It will still be a great day.